Well, good morning. As you have already probably figured out, Pastor Keith is not here. Uh, he's down in Lake of the Ozarks suffering with the college students. They're having a good time on the college retreat. So I have the privilege of kicking off our Psalms in the Summer series. Uh, this morning, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 3. So while you turn there, I'll open up with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we do thank You and for Your Word. We pray that it will be preached well this morning, that we would take truths from Your Word, apply it to our lives, to our hearts, and ultimately bring honor and glory to Your name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 3. And the question is, where will you turn? Makes sense when you read the first two verses of Psalm chapter 3, you see David crying out. And the first two verses say, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. This is David. This is David crying out. I think one of the great things about the Psalms, probably one of the most powerful things about the Psalms is how we can connect to them emotionally. We understand uh, that we're human. We're made to have all these different emotions. And it's kind of refreshing when there's someone who's being honest about their struggles and their feelings. And you find that here in the Psalms. And you especially find that with David as he pens many of these Psalms. I think there's just something raw that you see. And you can just hear and feel the truth being poured out on paper. But to truly appreciate what David is saying, even right here in these two verses, we really need to go back to the context. We really need to understand what brought David to these two verses. Why is David crying out to the Lord about foes surrounding him, many people coming against him, people saying that God's abandoned him? For that, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. So if we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15, we kind of jump in. David's probably about 60 years old, but the key figure in 2 Samuel 15, at least in the beginning, is his son, Absalom. Now, I'm not going to read all of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 here this morning, I'm just going to run through a little bit of the context and give you the highlights and pull out some verses that I think are important. But here in chapter 15, the beginning, what we see is that Absalom, the son of David, is vying, planning, scheming to take over the kingdom from David. And so for four years, Absalom stands at the gate and starts to win over the people of Israel. And basically he says, David isn't helping you out. He's pretty much a modern-day politician. You know, David isn't meeting your needs. Only if there was someone like me, I would take care of you. And time after time, he would come up to to the palace and say, hey, I have such and such problem. And Absalom would be like, hey, I have a solution for you. Oh, but I'm not the king. And David, he's really, he really can't take care of that for you. And so this happened over and over again. And the years progressed. More and more people started to buy in to what Absalom was selling. And we come to a head here in verse 12 of chapter 15, where Absalom has 
said, now is the time I'm going to take Jerusalem. So he goes a little ways away up to Hebron. He he uh, has devises a plan and he says, when the trumpets blow, everyone declare that Absalom is the king. And that's what happens. And you see here in verse 12, um, David's, uh, David's counselor from his city of Gilo, talking about Ahithophel, we'll talk about him later, but, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom, with Absalom kept increasing. These are the people that are against David. They're the people that are with his son who is trying to overthrow the throne, overthrow God's anointed king. These are his foes. It's not only his son, but all of these people that Absalom has been working on and working on and working on say, hey, I'll be better for you. You come with me. And now Absalom is set to come take Jerusalem by force. So instead of standing and fighting against his own son, David takes what's left of his household, takes the faithful servants, and he says, we're going. We're leaving. We're going to leave the palace. We're going to leave this whole Temple Mount, and we're going to go. And we're going to go up the Mount of Olives, across into the wilderness. We'll go on the other side of the mountain, towards the Jordan, and we'll see what plays out. And here in the end of chapter 15, we kind of get a picture of what's going on. If you look down at verse 23 of chapter 15, you'll see, And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. It's a sad day for Israel. Their king is leaving. The faithful to the king are also leaving. They're weeping. They're crying. They're heading towards the wilderness. You get a picture of David himself. In verse 30, they crossed the brook Kidron. And then in verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is a pretty sad day in Israel. This maybe help you out a little bit. Uh, here you have, down in this corner, this would be probably where the palace was situated. And so David is taking all the faithful servants and they're going to go down towards the valley. And in this valley here, this valley is the valley or the brook of Kidron. So he takes his people, they're going down to the valley Kidron, they cross the brook. And the brook maybe had a little water um, running, depending on what time of the year it was. It would have some sewage and stuff, so it was kind of this dirty, nasty thing. They have to cross over that. And then here, they're going to ascend, that's the Mount of Olives. So the scene is one of just a trail of people going down into the brook of Kidron, across the brook, and then up the Mount of Olives to the other side where the wilderness and the Jordan lie. David is barefoot. He's weeping. His head is covered. His day gets worse. In chapter 16, or I guess at the end of chapter 15, David gets word that Ahithophel, one of his most trusted counselors, has stayed with Absalom. No doubt he thinks that Absalom is the future of Israel, so to save his own skin, he stays. And then he hears from a guy named Ziba that Mephibosheth, a young boy that David had taken into his own household, probably raised him as a son, had stayed in Israel. Now he was mistaken. He assumed that of Mephibosheth. We find out later that Mephibosheth was deceived. But if you try, try and get the mindset of David, 
He's crying, he's weeping, he's bringing all these servants, he's leaving the palace, he's got to go across the mountain, over the side. He's barefoot, he's crying, he finds out his most trusted counselor just abandoned him. He thinks that his, this young boy that he, he's known from his youth has abandoned him and left him there. And then, this almost absurd scene happens, look at Second uh, Samuel 16, look at verses 5 through 8. David comes down the other side of the Mount of Olives, and here's what happens. Verse 5, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei. That is his name, I looked it up. Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. I get this picture of this old guy just running out. He's cursing, he's throwing rocks, and he's saying, Get out of here! You can't leave soon enough. You're no good. You took the throne from Saul. You're a man of blood. You don't deserve it. God has abandoned you. And look at you now. David's got mighty men next to him. These are some fierce dudes. They're like, David, who is this guy? You're the king. Let me go over and chop his head off. That's what it says. Let me go over and remove his head from his body. But David's response, he pretty much shrugs his shoulders. You know, maybe he's right. Maybe this is the Lord cursing me. Maybe he is doing God's, job, God's business and he's just telling me I'm all to blame for this. So he kind of hangs his head. The mighty men are like, standing there like, are you serious? We can't just go kill this guy? He's like, come on. We're going towards the wilderness. That's his state of mind. And somewhere in this span is where David penned Psalm 3. 2 Samuel 16 ends with Absalom in the palace of the king. He's saying, I'm here now and I am king. Insult to injury to show all of Israel who's boss. He's up on the roof taking David's concubines as his own. All that happens within about a 24-hour span of time, I believe. So the next time you're having a bad day, just think about this day in the life of David. This is a bad day. But this is the backdrop and the setting for these two verses. Now maybe you understand a little better about the emotional concept behind this. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That's a lot to take. What does any of that have to do with me? What does any of that have to do with you? Well, that's a good story. It's a sad, tragic story, but that's David. And that's done. We're 3,000 years past that. Let me give you a couple observations, four actually, just from these two verses and these chapters here that I think are important. The first one I've already mentioned. We're emotional. Hey, that's okay. We are created as emotional people. Guess what? Things happen. Bad things come. Be honest about it. 
I think this is a good thing that David, I don't think David is really complaining here or begrudging. He's just being honest. He's overwhelmed. He's in despair. And he goes and he turns to God and he says, God, what am I supposed to do? It's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of people that want me dead. We should have that same freedom. We do have that same freedom. Talk to God. Not advising complaining or yelling. But talk to God. Be honest with how you're feeling. Be honest with life circumstances. And go to God. Second quick observation here that I'm guessing most of you have realized if you're a Christian that following God isn't always easy. That becoming a Christian or following Jesus doesn't mean all your problems all of a sudden disappear. Life happens. And life continues to happen to the Christian. Good things and bad. And so the question comes, whatever circumstances I face, the good and the bad, the hard and the easy, where will I turn? To whom will I go? There's going to be difficult days. If you haven't had any, they're coming. Many of you have already experienced difficult days, trying times, Annoying people, difficult people. This is life. David dealt with that. But here's an important observation that we'll spend a little more time on here. Sin has consequences. I was reading a little mom was trying to explain to her little five-year-old girl. She's saying, listen, When you disobey me, if you choose to disobey me, you're going to have to live with the consequences. Little girl's a little terrified. She's, Mommy, Mommy, I don't want to live with the consequences. I want to live here with you. Right? What she didn't understand, but we know very well, is we always, we do live with our consequences. We have to live with the decisions we make, the choices we make, the actions we take. That's life. But if we choose sin, consequences will follow. As we were going through that with David, chapters 15 and 16 of 2 Samuel, I wonder if you are thinking, how in the world did it get this bad? How in the world does the king of Israel end up with a son who wants to overtake his throne? How does that happen? I'll show you. But you've got to flip back a couple more chapters. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The short story is David had a dysfunctional family. And the reason why David had a dysfunctional family is because of David. If you were to go to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll see when David became king, he took more wives and he had more sons and he had more daughters. David simply had a woman problem. God had set up when he, when he said, okay, you want to king Israel? Well, here's the deal. Don't accumulate wealth. Don't accumulate might and horses. And he said, don't accumulate wives. Well, guess what? David was king. He could do what he wants. David said, I'm king. There's some pretty ladies over there. I'll take them. 
That's sin. It goes against what God said. That's where it begins. But then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and a more familiar scene maybe to you is the story here of Bathsheba. And again, we won't read through this. Hopefully you're familiar with it a little bit. I'll just give you the quick narrative, point out a couple verses here. The men are out to war. The text actually says it's a time when kings went to war, so I'm wondering why David is at home in the palace, but that's another sermon probably. David's at home in the palace. The men are out to battle, and he's sitting out on his porch, and he's looking across the way, and there's Bathsheba. She's on the roof bathing. And David says, I'm king. I get to do what I want. Bathsheba, come here. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to one of his soldiers, Uriah. A little while later, Bathsheba says, Hey, David, I'm pregnant. Oh, boy, this is a problem. I'm king. You're another man's wife. I got it. I'll cover it up. Uriah, come home. Uriah, drink. Uriah, go home and love your wife. Uriah has too much integrity for that. No, I can't do that. My men are out on the battlefield. If only David would have thought that. But he didn't. And Uriah didn't go. And so now the order came to Joab, put Uriah on the front lines. So we have a sinful look, we have lust, we have adultery, and now we have premeditated and executed murder. All to cover up his sin. As far as David is concerned, maybe at that point he thinks he's good. He's in the clear. But there's a key verse. You need to look at verse 27 of chapter 11. The end of chapter 11 says this. And when the morning was over, that is of Uriah dying. At least he waited for that, right? David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Here's the key. But the thing that he had done displeased the Lord. You're not escaping God or His love. So then God sends Nathan. Try to really fast forward here. Nathan comes, tells a nice story, a sad story, a tragic story about a rich man who takes a poor man's little family ewe lamb, the only one they have, because he didn't want to take one of his many to feed this guy that shows up at his front door. And David is enraged. He said, how can you do that? That guy must surely be put to death. I'll take his life. And Nathan has that famous line, you, David, are the man. What? Oh, Bathsheba, she, Uriah, poor guy, rich guy. Oh, man, I'm in trouble because I just said that dude should die. What's going to happen? Consequences to sin. Second Samuel verse chapter twelve verse ten. Verse nine says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The Lord says, David, your sin has found you out and here's the consequences. Your household is going to be ripped apart. 
and it's going to be ripped apart by the sword. And this starts a domino effect. The major tragedies that happen over the next couple chapters is David's own daughter, Tamar, gets raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Absalom gets mad because Tamar is his sister. These are all interrelated kids of David's, right? Absalom gets mad at Amnon and kills Amnon. People want justice, but David's like, well, that, that's pretty much what I did, so can't really do anything. He ignores the situation. Absalom flees, and now he's sitting out in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, as the sin festers, that was never taken care of, what is birth is what will eventually end up in this revolt and rebellion of Absalom. As the cliff notes, go home and read the whole story there. But it started with David's sin. It started with choosing to disobey the Lord. We have to realize that sin has consequences, but here's the fourth observation that you cannot separate from the third, and it's this, which will help us get through the rest of the psalm quickly. Sin has not conquered us. While we all still have to deal with the consequences of sin, if we are followers of God and believers in Christ, sin does not define us. Sin has not conquered us. We may deal with some consequences and we may deal with life in a fallen world, but we do not have to be slaves to sin. We are followers of Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, you see a repentant heart. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He got it right. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Consequence, you're going to lose this baby. Consequence, your house is going to be a wreck. But the Lord has put away your sin. He's going to have to live with the consequences for the rest of his life, but he would not be conquered or defined by sin. As he confessed and repented of that sin, God forgave him of that sin. You want to look like what repentance and confession looks like? Psalm 51 is David confessing this sin. But I just want to mention here as we move on, that as we consider the situation that David finds himself in, I would assume that there may have been some temptation to allow sin to reign in his life, to allow sin to kind of defeat him, where he might have been tempted to listen to those around him, Those that said, hey, you're too bad. You're too wicked. Blood's on your hands. God is done with you. He may have been recalling those words of Shimei, saying the Lord's done with you. You got what you deserved. He may have been tempted to let the guilt and shame and despair drive him away from God. I wonder if you've ever been in the place where David is at. I'm assuming that you don't have a son that's trying to kill you and take your throne. But I'd imagine that you realize following God doesn't mean an easy, carefree life. I would assume that if you're here this morning, that you've sinned like me. And you may still be dealing, like me, with some consequences of sin. 
Maybe you've been abandoned by some friends and family when you needed them most. Maybe you've been mocked for your following of God when things just aren't going your way. There are still others that may be here today who have questioned their place before God. You think that God can't possibly forgive what you've done. You're here broken. You're hurting. You're lost. You're searching for answers. Can I tell you there's hope? Can I tell you that David picks up his pen and he writes the rest of this psalm and it's one of hope? Look at the next few verses. But you, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is confident. I believe it's his theology, his knowledge of God that fuels his confidence. I just want to quickly run through the things that just point, come out of this text in what David believes. He says the Lord is his shield. He understands that it is God who protects him all around, on the top, on the bottom, on the sides, on the inside and the outside. It's God who is his protector. He understands that the Lord is his glory. The king doesn't find, the king of God does not find his glory in riches or fame or position or status or power, but it's in the presence of God. That's what it means for the Lord to be his glory. He says, the Lord is a lifter of my head. This is so significant. It's not David lifting up his head to God. It's God reaching down and lifting David's head, encouraging David. The Lord is listening to his cries. David knows that the Lord hears and listens to the prayers of his people. He says, I cried out to the Lord and you answered me. He knows that God cares and he listens. He says he went to sleep. The Lord is his rest and his comfort. This guy is on the run. There are literally thousands of people that could be coming over the mountainside at any moment to come down and kill him. And what does he do? He goes to sleep. Where's he sleeping? I think he's out in the open. He's just lying there. Who could sleep at a time like this? One whose confidence is in God. The Lord is his sustainer. He understands that as he went to sleep and then he woke up the next morning, this is a morning psalm. He said, it's God who did it. It's God who sustained me through the night. He's the one who gives me life each day. The Lord is his protector. It doesn't matter how many thousands of people show up. He's trusting in the Lord. David knows that one plus God is a majority in any situation. Sometimes we're dealing with the consequences of our own sin. And other times we're just dealing with living in a fallen world. But the question remains the same. Where will you turn? Based on this psalm, I think the key is clear. The believer is to walk by faith and not by sight. That means to trust in the Lord despite the appearances. So as a boy, when 
David is standing before Goliath. He doesn't see this big, bad, mean Goliath. He says, my faith is in the Lord. And just as he delivered me from the paw of the bear and the mouth of the lion, he will deliver me. When Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land, went into Canaan, they didn't see the fortified cities. They didn't see the big people. Well, they saw them, but they didn't care. Why? Because their faith was in God. Their faith sustained them. When all Abraham could see in front of him was an altar with his only son, by faith he raised up his arm. But it was God who stopped that hand from coming down. When the lives of her people were on the line, Esther didn't care about the potential consequences as she stood before the king because she had faith in her God. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up, would not bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, when they saw that fire, when they felt that heat, they didn't care. They had faith in God that He would deliver them in life or in death. When Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, we give him a lot of flack, but the dude stepped out of the boat. Despite endless bottom, water, can't walk on that, Peter stepped out of the boat. Why? Because his eyes of faith, even if it was only for a moment, allowed him to step out of the boat as he had his eyes fixed on Christ. We could go on and on and on. But the, the example is there for us over and over again through Scripture. Walk by faith and not by sight. And that means whatever the appearances are, don't look at that. Look at your God. Because He's the one who takes care of us. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So as we walk by faith, we turn to God. When the circumstances of life become overwhelming, when we're facing difficult situations, when we're looking for His guidance, we turn to God. We, like David, trust that God is our shield, our glory, the lifter of our head, that He is listening to our cries, that He is our rest, our comfort, our sustainer, and our protector. We don't fear man because we fear the Lord. And that brings us to David's Conclusion. Verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David now cries out, not out of worry or despair, but in confidence in his God. His conclusion is that God is sovereign. That salvation belongs to the Lord, that His plan is best, and that He will follow Him. Blessing will follow the people of the Lord. This morning, we can rise from whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, standing with David, saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Do what you will, God. I trust in you. But it's not because of what I have done. Because there was another man who had been rejected by his own people. There is another man 
who along with his disciples crossed the brook Kidron and entered into a night of prayer. He too was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world. In John 18.1, we find this verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Here was a man that had been rejected by his hometown, about to be betrayed by Judas, about to be abandoned by his disciples as he crosses the brook of Kidron. When David crossed that brook, he crossed that brook with the weight of his own sin on his shoulders as he looked up to the Mount of Olives. But as Jesus went down that hill and He crossed that brook of Kidron, He didn't have the weight of His own sin on His shoulders. He had the weight of the sin of the world on His shoulders. And He crossed that brook. And He went up that mountain. And He spent the night in prayer. He didn't get a good night's sleep like David did. But as He rose up from prayer... He came to the same conclusion. Your will is better. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In Mark's account, Jesus gets up from praying. He finds His disciples sleeping. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He says, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He said, come on. We're going. I have heard from the Lord. The angel has come. He's comforted me. There's no way out. But salvation is the Lord's. Let's go. Confidence in the Lord. So that one day we might stand through any trials that we might face. So that one day we might be able to see past our failures, our guilt, our shame. The punishment that we deserve. So that one day we might cling to the cross. Knowing that there is no trial that we cannot face. There is no suffering that we cannot bear. Because just as He conquered death sin and the grave so shall we we rise with David and with Jesus saying salvation belongs to the Lord that's where we find our confidence that's where we turn no matter what life brings We are so grateful for Your Son who descended that hill, who crossed that brook. For our sake, for our sin, He was perfect. Yet He came to serve, to die for us, so that one day we might live with Him forever, being reconciled before a holy, just, and perfect God. Lord, help us recognize that weight. Help us turn to You in every circumstance, 
in every way, in every situation, so that we rise up with joy as we say salvation belongs to the Lord. In His name we pray.